Good morning, Petaluma. You are listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted. I'm Rabbi Ted Feldman, the rabbi of B'nai Israel Jewish Center here in Petaluma and the chair of the Petaluma Community Relations Council. Welcome to today's show. During our second segment today, we'll be welcoming Mary Frances Walsh, who is the executive director of the National Alliance on Mental Illness for the Sonoma County area. And here in our first segment, it's great to welcome Albert Strauss, CEO, President, Founder, Founder of the Strauss Dairy. And it's great to have you here with us. Welcome to the studio. Thank you, Robert. It's, it's nice to be here. Well, we hope so. I hope you'll be able to say that after this discussion, too. You, you never know. You never know. Yeah, so it's great. We, you know, we see uh, the Strauss family name all over the place. Every time we go into a store and different places, uh, you've developed quite, quite a business over the years. And I think it's wonderful for our community to be able to learn a little bit about you and what it all means. Uh, I think certainly the word organic is pretty powerful in this part of the world, uh, but in other parts of our country, it might not be quite the same. And we'll be getting into some of those questions later, but how did you, your family get into this business? I know your dad started this way back when. Yeah, um, my father um, actually came from Germany in the 30s, and... Um, uh, settled, well, went to Berkeley and Davis in agriculture and uh, ended up on our farm, buying a small farm, 160 acres, in 1941, and um, and then expanded it over the years. Um, but it was a conventional farm, and I came back from Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo in, in the 70, late 70s and became partners with him on the farm. and. It's a struggle to survive as a family farm in the United States. Um, we've lost 99% of the farms. We had 4.6 million dairy farms in 1940. We have 37,000 left today. Wow. Wow. So that was pretty, for him to have come over from Germany, what was, was the family involved agriculturally back in as his family? Do you actually, it's complicated. Okay. Um, my his father, who died when he was four on the way back from World War One as influenza, um, had a PhD in agriculture. Um, he had managed a, a, a sta- an estate or two, um, but in those days, weren't allowed. Uh, Jews weren't allowed to own land, and so. Um, my father and his mother left Germany in 1936 and went to Palestine. And but his grandfather actually had been in San Luis Obispo in 1868 until the 1890s and um, had a general store. And so my father got a telegram to come to California to 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 look at some issues in California, and he ended up staying here. Uh, so the adage, go west, young man, actually happened with your father, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. Said, wow, okay. That's quite a family history, I mean, going back into the 1800s and the whole uh, leaving Europe uh, in that particularly difficult period of time in the 1930s and then to come here. Right. Yeah. So what happened once you got into the business? Well, I tried to operate as a, a conventional farm and dairy uh, for 
oh, quite a few years, and then it had into integrated a lot of practices that I felt were sustainable. My parents were very active in trying to keep farming and farmland um, in agriculture and in open space and really were environmentalists before their time. Um, they, my mother founded, co-founded the Marine Agricultural Land Trust, first agricultural land trust in the nation uh, to preserve. They preserved over half the agricultural land in Marine County now and they, have, they want to get the rest by night. Uh, 2040, um, and so they they were very active trying to keep uh, the communication between agricultural um, community members, environmentalists, uh, active in in, Mar in Marin County, and really for a common good of uh, protecting the agricultural land as well as open space and the rural communities. And that was pretty innovative in that period of time, wasn't it? That it, was, uh, it was. It was a time when it was a kind of a tipping point when we were. There was a plan to put 100,000 people in West Marin, uh, put a four-lane freeway in, um, and it was. That was actually approved. It was going to be. Uh, I think it was a house for. It was very a house per acre or less even. Um, so that was actually incorporated in the countywide plan, and so when. They were, we were one of the only farming families that were supportive of what's called A60 zoning, which was one house per 60-acre agricultural zoning, which was revolutionary at the time. Uh -huh. But it helped preserve Mar West Marin and Marin County agricultural land. But then that was could be overturned on the uh, vote of the Board of Supervisors. And so that's when the Marin Agricultural Land Trust was an idea that my mother and her friend Phyllis Faber came up with. And we're able to start that in 1980, uh, the Marine Agricultural Land Trust. So. so that's a pretty profound uh, contribution to this part of our world. Yeah, and it, there's been land trusts. Sonoma County has one. Um, there's land trusts pretty much all over the nation, and they really have a lot of work to do because we've lost a lot of agricultural land and prime agricultural land in the country. Right. So what what was the we'll talk a little bit we'll get into the discussion of, far away. <laughs> of of organic and what it means sure. and, and all that but what was the process for you with, in the company of getting you to that point? So we were a dairy farm um, until well we were a dairy farm selling to a cooperative where we just produced the milk and they picked it up every day and took it into a processor to process into cheese or powder or butter. Or, or any any products. Um, so in 1990, someone approached me about doing organic milk for ice cream, and um, I, it was a new law in California. It took me three and a half years to figure out what how to feed the cows, how to treat the cows, how you know develop. A, I wanted to process my own milk um, and make my own products. Um, ice cream was something I had was a kind of a, a soft point for me because I, I had taken ice cream making in, at, at Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo and won third place in the regional ice cream scoring contest in Portland, Oregon. Right. And, and I <laughs> ate way too much ice cream at the time. Um, but so it took me, a, you know, that much time to how to finance the creamery, how to, to work on all these products. But we were able to open as a as the first certified organic dairy and creamery west of Mississippi River in the beginning of 1994 and also become the first 100% certified organic creamery in the United States. 
which the creamery different from the farm. The farm produces the milk, the creamery processes in bottles of milk, makes a butter, makes a yogurt, right, ice cream. Right, right. Yeah. So how, was there a lot more on the East Coast at that point? You, you mentioned that west of the Mississippi, but was organic farming? Uh, it was very small, uh-huh. um, but there was uh, Organic Valley had, I think, eight or ten farms in, uh-huh. in Wisconsin. Um, Horizon had just started uh, taking milk. Well, they were a brand more than they were a farm at that time. But they had started up taking milk from Organic Valley and, and making yogurt. Um, so there was some people back east of the, you know, there was a couple small people in Vermont and, and okay. different places. Okay. So let's, let's talk about the organic part here. So we've got uh, the farming side, which has something to do with how the animals are raised and how they're treated, and the processing side. So let's start with the farming side. Right. And what is what does this mean? And so are there laws governing the label, etc.? Yes. California had a, a law in 1990, uh, the uh, Organic Foods Act of 1990. Actually, nationally, there's a, a law that was enacted at the same time. Um, but it California had the law when I was in when I started up is where certified organic means the land has to be free of herbicides, pesticides, or and synthetic synthetic fertilizers for at least three years. And then in the dairy's case, the cows have to be fed all organic feeds and no hormones or antibiotics are allowed to be uh, given to the animals. So it's it's a system that kind of goes before you have to learn how to prevent disease and how to how to uh, really manage your cows and your health, herd health a lot better because prevention is 99% of the cure. And we've had actually better herd health uh, since we went organic than before. And so how do you deal with the fact if a cow is sick and needs antibiotics for to be healthy? Well, it's actually in the cows, it's, it's, we haven't used anything any antibiotics in what is it, 26 years now. Okay. Um, but the calves are more vulnerable. So, like like babies, you know, they're, they're susceptible to, yeah. to a lot of disease. So, um, the law says in 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 cases where you're, there's animal suffering or uh, health of animals at risk, you 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 are required to give an antibiotic, even though. There's studies that actually show that 99, well, 80%, there was a study on, on mastitis, which is a cow disease, that 80% of the time, if you gave an antibiotic or not, it didn't, the cow was either going to get better or not on our own. Calves are, you really have to be proactive and, and really work to prevent disease. But ultimately, if you, if you need to give an antibiotic for the, for the life of the animal, you have to, you have to do that. And is that uh, animal removed from the herd. It has to be removed from the herd. Right, right, okay. And, you know, the flies and the pests or, and the mosquitoes are all out there flying around, so no pesticides. How do you prevent the animals from being... Um, well, I've, I've done many different things over the years for flies. Uh, ultimately, what we're using now is uh, like a, a fly zappers, um, sticky strips, um, okay. and... Um, there's some natural natural sprays that um, kind of um, are are allowed. Okay, so just like in people's homes, they can choose not to use uh, 
raid in a can to take care of everything. Right. Uh, the same thing applies. Right. There. It has to be approved by the National Organic Rules. The uh -huh. materials have to be approved, be on the proof list. Uh -huh. So we get inspected yearly. Um, we have to keep a, have a whole plan. It's called a uh, organic systems plan that we every farm has to have in place and is is inspected to that and certified to that uh, plan. And have you been involved nationally in in all of these processes that have happened over the years? I've been very much involved from in the so. very beginning, um, helping helping formulate all the the regulations. Twice a year, there's a National Organic Standards Board that meets somewhere once on the east side of the country, one on the west side of the country, that takes testimony and input about how we can improve the organic regulations. And so it's a continuously work in progress. Um, and so we kind of, what I'd like to say is that it's actually the gold standard where all these other claims about non-GMO and animal welfare and and uh, grass-fed and all these things are talking about one aspect of what a certified organic means, yet it just confuses consumers because people don't, aren't clear as to what all these other standards are that don't have any national law or any any uh, requirements for certification and inspection. So what do people look for on the product to assure that it's, it's not dealing with GMOs and Pesticide-free and grass-fed. Uh, the USD, the USD certified organic logo uh -huh. is the one that is required by anything that's certified organic. Okay, so that that on a product seal. would be able to uh, help the consumer know that there is actually some oversight to what is being produced here. Right. Because it seems to me that. Uh, <coughs> Excuse me. A couple of uh, number of years ago, there were products coming out that seemed to imply healthy uh, for whatever set of reasons and misusing terminology, and that it became a little bit of a, uh, a fight among producers of uh, foodstuffs, just in general, dairy products too, of course. But that it, it, the clarification is really important for people to understand what these different terms mean. Right, and I think that as we, as a society, we swing from one extreme to another, rather than looking at, you know, what are the best practices? What, how can we really kind of look at the, our diets change from extreme to extreme? And diets bad every couple you know, of years. I mean, actually, I'll give you an example. Uh, four and a half years ago, milk fat is now good for you. Mm. So everybody started eating high fat dairy products. So there's no balance. So the cow doesn't just give cream, which is high fat. It gives a blend. You know, a, well, our, our, our average fat from our cows is four um, percent. And but if people buy only, you know, four to well, ice creams, you know, uh, fourteen to fifteen percent, and uh, cream is thirty-six percent. Um, if they buy more of that, that means that they're not balancing what comes from the cow. So it's it's a dilemma for us is how do we get more sales of, if we have too much non-fat or the, the leftover milk, what do we do with that? And so that's the industry's kind of groping. There's an international shortage of cream right now and butter wow. milk fat. international so. shortage of cream. Maybe we'll get a so, tariff on it from, the, from Washington. You never know what's going to happen in our yeah, world. Just, just make it more expensive. <laughs> That'll just make it more expensive. 
So, and could you explain GMO a little bit, so for listeners that aren't familiar with that? So, it's interesting. GMOs are actually genetically modified organisms, so they call it genetic engineering. There's many different names, but essentially what you're taking is a... A seed, a seed, or you're going, you're taking, you're manipulating the DNA of the of of a plant, normally, and and forcing different different species of of, of uh, DNA or the diff, uh, strands into the one strand. So in a micro, under a microscope, you're doing all these manipulations, and so it's strictly prohibited by organic regulations. Um, we we actually found that in 2005 I started testing our certified organic corn and soybeans for um, GMOs and found that we were, we had contamination of our corn mm. of GMOs and so I started my own testing and verification program of every load of feed and every ingredient that goes in our product in 2008 and in 2010 became the first creamery in North America to be non-GMO verified under the non-GMO project and. Um, to this day, I think we're still the only creamery, you know, brand right. that actually tests every load of feed and every ingredient that goes into our product. Right, and we see on some other but processed foods, non-GMO on there too. Yeah, and GMOs are the main reason that they they've been converted is to either produce a pesticide or be resistant of a pesticide. It's over ninety percent of GMO corn, soybean, bee pulp. There's I mean, excuse me, beets, um, um, there's a bunch of canola, there's a bunch of different plants, um, is to be able to, to um, be able to spray pesticides so they won't die when they're, so they're genetically modifying so they can spray. And we're using more Roundup and we're using more of these pesticides that are, are showing up in human, human, um, humans, um, and it's a, now a probable carcinogen and, and Monsanto's been losing court cases uh, to the effect um, because people are getting sick off of this. Right, thing, so. right. And so once once the cow is fed with the organic products and everything is taken care of and the, the milk and the milk products get to the dairy, what's the next stage of organic in that in that setting? So at the creamery, um, for one thing, is, is having records on everything that we bring in and add to the product. So everything has to be certified organic that goes into our products, uh, which means all those, the pesticides that are besides, it has to be free of all that. Um, it has to be produced in a way that, actually for dairy, there's a pasture standard for for organic cows that they have to be on pastures for the maximum amount of time they can and a minimum of 120 days and most of their feed comes from that pasture. So um, there's different regulations, but all at the creamery side, everything has to be certified organic. In our case, what we try to do is minimally process and have no additives and have the highest quality products we can. So we do milk in reusable glass bottles that has a cream top. The cream flows to the top. I remember um, that when I was a kid, and the milkman would bring it with the cream on top. Right, and we've been doing it for 25 years now. Yeah. Um, we make butter. That's a high highest one of the highest fats and lowest moistures butters in the in the world. Um, it's it consistently well in the United States. Um, conventional butter, the butter typically called butter, it has to be eighty percent butter fat. In Europe, it's eighty two percent. Ours is eighty five percent consistently. So, um, 
So it, it makes it works a lot better than log butter. It, it doesn't burn as well, uh, burn as easily when it's saute and stuff like. And we make yogurt. Um, that's a um, it's a European style. It's a pourable, and then we also make a Greek yogurt. And then we have uh, ice cream, uh, super premium ice cream line that uh, that but it took me a long time to get going. But it's uh, it doesn't have uh, any stabilizers in it. It only uses egg yolk as a stabilizer, and so it's uh, but it's all certified organic and it's the highest the highest uh, quality it can do. So we have anyway. There's more stuff than that, but you want to ask yeah, me something. Yeah, no, I was going to say, are you back to eating the ice cream again now? I've been eating ice cream. <laughs> okay. I actually had a diet of ice cream, salad, and coffee for a while, but um, um, now I'm eating less. Okay. That could be a fad diet. You could start in America and start a whole new industry. That would be great. That would be great. So one of the things, obviously, about uh, organic products and uh, milk and the, the dairy products is the price points are generally a lot higher. So first of all, I guess the question would be, what, what is the advantage of the consumer spending more money uh, for this? And is there a, a price point in the industry where the organic industry thinks that more people will buy if we can get it down to and uh, where it will become more mass-produced than it is right now? So I think we've, we've <coughs> food in the United States is, is, is less than in almost anywhere in, in the world. Mm-hmm. And... Farms are disappearing at it. We actually are importing uh, over half our fruit, a third of our vegetables, 10% of beef. So what we're doing for the last 80 years is not working in the United States. So our mission actually is to sustain family farms in Marin Sonoma County by producing 100% certified organic dairy products and to help revitalize rural communities through education and advocacy everywhere. So I like to say that even the price that farmers get is not enough for them to pay themselves a, a salary as a manager of their own business. Mm-hmm. Most farmers, 85% of farmers, have off-farm income as their as their primary income. So this is not a system that's working. So food is not really the true cost of food. Um, quality food, we're paying more through medical um, uh, medical insurance and everything else. We have more health. So. Our prices are higher, our quality is better than we feel most of our competition. And so the price, what people, we try to make it, make make it, we don't try to make it af- affordable, we make try to give a value that actually supports a whole farming and food system. Right, so it's a kind of the balance between availability to the consumer, sufficient sufficient volume in order to maintain the system. Right. And we work we work with schools. We work with, uh, you know, we're able to get organic milk in schools at a better rate than conventional uh, because even though it's twice as expensive, they have lots less lots, uh, waste. And so, anyway, we can talk more about those type of things. Yeah, I know yeah. we're running out of time. Yeah, we're, we're, we're moving down, but I think it's uh, important. I mean, you are... Uh, such a big part of this general community around here and your dairy and uh, the creamery and all the productions that, that's yeah. coming. I just want to say, we were the first certified organic uh, dairy in the western United States. Now in Marin Sonoma County, 90% of the dairies are certified organic, and wow. it's pretty much the only way to survive as a family farm. Wow. Okay. And where's your production? And there are 10, 10 dairies that supply our creamery. 10 dairies supply including mine. 
including your own farm. Imran Sonoma County. Right. And um, where's your production? Where is the creamery? The creamery is still in Marshall. Uh-huh. Uh, we're in the process of moving to Rona Park um, uh-huh. in the next year. And so it's, um, but we've been there for 25 years on a, on a, in an old commercial kitchen and, uh, and, you know, it's worked, served us well all, over these years. Yeah, it's a big step and a big project, I know, yes. this, uh, that you have undertaken. So all of this has come uh, through your uh, father who got this started and the Jewish community in which you grew up and the values. How do you see yourself uh, as a Jew in this in this business? Is that ever a part of your mission? Is that where you're coming from? Is it part of how you see the world? I feel that uh, being Jewish is, is, is a culture is culturally uh, very important to me, and um, I, I value all my history and, and ancestry and, and knowledge around where we fit in the world, and it really drives me to to make the place that I'm living better and and uh, driving to really build a community and our farms and really be here to make a difference. Well, you certainly have made a difference uh, in this industry of yours, and we, as a community, appreciate the availability of the products, and I think also the lessons you are teaching about uh, what it means to eat healthy, and how we treat our animals, and all of the values that come through in that bottle of milk or that uh, container of yogurt that sits on the shelf. Any final thoughts you want to share with uh, with our community before we finish up? No, I think, well, I, I feel that, you know, it's, it's Petaluma and I've lived, i come to Petaluma my whole life, and um, I feel that it's, it's a rich agricultural Jewish uh, community that has really been special to me. And we thank you very much, and thank you for what you brought to us, and I know we haven't covered your whole world in 24, 5, or 6 minutes here, but uh, you're sharing some of the lessons with our listeners is really an important part of at least the mission of this program, is to help let our community know that there's profound leadership in all different kinds of areas in our community here, and you are part of that, and we thank you very much. Thank, thank, thank you, you, Rabbi. for being Ted. with us. You are listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted on KPCA LP Petaluma. Please join us for our second segment following our short break. Thank you very much.
Welcome back, listeners, to this second segment of Talking with Rabbi Ted. I'm Rabbi Ted Feldman of B'nai Israel Jewish Center here in Petaluma and the chair of the Petaluma Community Relations Council. You're listening on KPCA LP, Petaluma, California, streamed online at kpca.fm. Welcome back to our second segment. We have here in our studio our guest, Mary Frances Walsh, who is the executive director of the Sonoma County National Alliance on Mental Illness. And it's great to have you in the studio today. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's, um, we're switching topics from organic farming <laughs> to mental health. Yes. Isn't that, um, we, we, there must be some connection. I'm sure there is. And it's just about uh, recognizing uh, our nature, our human nature. And um, we all have mental health, and some of us have mental illness, and it's an organic process. It, it, and it is an organic process. There we go. That's the connection. <laughs> you can come give a sermon in the synagogue about that <laughs> anytime you would like for making that connection. But, um, you know, this, it's interesting how you said that about mental health and mental illness. And uh, I remember in college, which I made when I majored in psychology, we had a course on normal psychology mm-hmm. and a course on abnormal psychology, and it was confusing at times to figure I, that I'm out. I'm sure it is. You know, we all have feelings and emotions, and we have our ups and downs. And mental illness, um, first of all, is very common. Uh, one of every five Americans will experience mental illness in their lifetime, and that goes for adults as well as children. But mental illness is a matter of intensity, of frequency, of, um, of continuous, something is um, exaggerated. It could be uh, feelings of anger, it could be feelings of sadness, it could be an inability to connect with other people, it could be inability to sleep. 
either sleeping too much or sleeping too little, all of which are signs and symptoms that something is not right. Yeah, that's, that's, you know, I had wanted to get into your background a little bit, but you've started this discussion, and I, I think it's a great okay. one, because how do we pr- stop from pathologizing uh, somebody's be- everybody's behavior? You know, if somebody, you know, gets angry at something, and where, where do well, we, where well do we draw the lines? Oh, those feelings are normal. It's, it's when they, uh, as I said, continue over a period of time, and somebody loses control over them, perhaps. Um, And sometimes it's family members who know best. They have this sense of something is not within the realm of normal. And they need to encourage that person and support that person to seek help. Um, Families play an enormous role in supporting people who live with a mental health condition. Um, The possibility of recovery, of, of of improving one's mental health, is much, much higher when families are involved. Because people need support. And sometimes just seeing a mental health clinician is not enough. They need to know that people care. They need to know that they're accepted. They need to know that mental health conditions are not somebody's fault. They're not a matter of somebody uh, lacking the will to do uh, t- to improve their behavior. Mental illness is something that uh, people have lost control over the way they think or behave or feel, and they need some help. So in our country, there's often a stigma around issues concerning Absolutely. mental illness. And I think it's gotten better over I the years. So uh, certainly, 40, 50 years ago, uh, the mental hospitals, people were hospitalized for all different kinds of right. mental conditions, etc., in a very different way. And we won't even talk about 100 and 150 years right. ago, but that was like. So things have changed a lot. It's that, gotten that much better. It's gotten much better. So, you know, but one of the things I see happening, you know, in, in uh in my world now, uh, you know, we recently had this shooting in a synagogue, and somebody dismissed it. Oh, it's just some crazy, right? Well, obviously, anybody who does something like that, I agree, probably fits into the category of mental illness. It's As not, do I. Right. Uh, uh, on the other hand, uh, trivializing it and saying there's nothing we are responsible for or can do about it uh, really dismisses the problem in a way that is hurtful both to the individual, his family now, which has to deal with what their son did, all those kinds of things. That's absolutely correct. And research tells us that people with mental illness are much more likely to be the victim of violence than the perpetrator of violence. Um, I think that what we need to do is to normalize the conversation around mental illness. If, If somebody has heart disease or cancer, there is no uh, suggestion that it not be treated, and there is no suggestion that it not be discussed. Um, But when mental illness affects an individual, there is a lot of silence around that. People feel embarrassed. I think they do feel guilty, even though they have no reason to feel guilty about it. And even their family members are often silenced. Uh, When 
we know that somebody that's close to us has been newly diagnosed with cancer, for example, we might reach out to them and say, how can we help? Uh, what do you need? Can we help prepare meals? Can we give you transportation to treatment? When somebody finds out that someone in their family has been hospitalized for a mental illness, most people go into absolute silence. They don't know what to say. There's a great deal of fear, and that level of stigma hurts people. It affects people because people need to be able to talk about their experiences and learn uh, that there are ways to overcome these challenges, and, and uh, no one should have to handle dealing with mental illness alone. There are many resources available in the community for support. So the, the acronym for uh, National Alliance on Mental Illness is NAMI. How, how does NAMI uh, serve these issues? <coughs> NAMI is a national organization that is actually celebrating its 40th year in the United States. It has chapters across the country. I represent NAMI Sonoma County, so we're an affiliate and we serve anyone in Sonoma County. We do not provide mental health services. What we do instead is we provide support groups, both for family members and for individuals who are in recovery from a mental illness. We offer education, so we firmly believe that if mental illness uh, is in your life as a family member or as an individual with a diagnosis, the best thing you can do is learn everything you can about it. So we offer a course called Family to Family, which teaches people about the major diagnostic categories, uh, gives them communication tools, tells them about resources that they can take advantage of to get help. Um, we also do quite a lot of presentations in our schools, both at the middle school and the high school level, um, to teach them about the signs and symptoms of mental illness and what they can do if they recognize it in themselves or in a friend. Um, we firmly believe that uh, we need to normalize the conversation about mental illness, and I think one of the best places to start is with young people so that they grow up comfortable with uh, talking about it and realizing that it's something that is treatable. So, I, I, and I, as you know from our discussions, I was uh, direct, executive director of an agency that provided right. mental health services, etc. So I understand it. One of the problems um, with the with the discussion is that people begin to label everything mental illness. And it becomes, uh, instead of being underused, it becomes overused. Oh, that person's, you know, got something, a screw loose. I mean, we have all these terms that we use in English. Yes. So how do we, how do we normalize the middle, middle of this so that it's a healthy way that we are able to identify and help people who may be confronting these issues? Well, I think there are two things. One is I think we need to be very clear in public policy about saying that there are other issues that I'm thinking now about mass shootings that occur in schools or in the synagogue, for example. And uh, we need to think about our gun policy, not just about mental illness. Mm. Um, and we need to uh, really uh, think about what measures we need to, to take to protect people so that they feel safe in public environments. Um, 
And the other thing that I think we need to do is just we need to be careful about our use of language. So terms like psycho or schizo or uh, nuts. What those are doing is dehumanizing mental illness. It's labeling people. So we don't say that somebody is. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm grasping here, but we don't say that people are a cancer. We say that they have cancer. So we need to, to understand that it matters when we say that someone has bipolar disorder or they have depression. They're not their disease. They are human beings. They are full persons. And, and this is a condition, just like having heart disease or cancer, that, as I said previously, that deserves to be treated. And that there is a great hope of recovery. There are many people that go on to lead very fulfilling lives because they have sought help and they get treatment and they get support from family members, and I mean family members very loosely, people that are close to them. Right. The, the, the important people in people's lives yeah. are the family, whether they be biological Absol- or absolutely. friendships or right. partners, partners whatever, whatever, in every way. So how did you get into, how did you, what was your journey I, to where you are? I have a background in public health. I went to the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, where I studied health policy and administration and worked in hospitals in New York City and in Chicago for a number of years. Uh, in Chicago, I served as administrative director of a department of psychiatry for a city hospital that uh, had both in and outpatient services. Um, but in addition to that, I also uh, am somebody who lost my father, who from who died by suicide when I was in college, and I remember very clearly how devastating that was for my family. Uh, they saw him in his early 60s fall apart when he was forced to retire. They did not know what to do. Now, I think things, as we said earlier, have gotten better. I think there's much, there's greater awareness, but we're still not all the way there. And I just think we need to make people aware that mental illness exists, that it is common, and that it is treatable. Suicide, in, in particular, is a preventable disease, and I, it's a public health issue because the numbers have been increasing over the past 20 years. And it is something we need to talk about and acknowledge. Absolutely. So, is uh, Nami, uh, I see that you have a warm line, and uh, are your educational programs done by professional therapists, by psychologists? What? They're not done by therapists. Okay. They're actually done by family members who have taken our courses and then gone through training in order to be able to teach a course. Mm-hmm. Same thing with our support groups. These are people with lived experience, and there is something so powerful about being able to share these experiences with people who have been in similar shoes. Right. I don't want the listeners to think that we're that the courses are clinical courses. They are not. Right They're there. very practical right. information. Of uh-huh. the, so, understanding from a layperson's point of view, what it feels like to have a mental illness, how family members can be supporters, how family members can set limits in order to take care of themselves. Because supporting somebody with a serious mental health condition 
can be very draining. It can be very challenging. But uh, by learning some tools about how to um, ha- how to cope with it, how to set limits, it can be an invaluable support. And finding other people who share the experience, who can sometimes share the humor of the wild experiences, who who understand what it's like to have a family member in the San- in the Santa Rosa jail who's been picked up for uh, a minor offense on the streets and now is in the jail partly because our county cannot afford to provide enough preventative services in mental illness. How does the clinical community feel about uh, dealing with mental illness at the lay person's level like I think they're very appreciative. Uh, We have very positive relationships. I think they see us as supplemental. It's just, it, it's, it's another source of support. It brings uh, family members into the picture. Uh-huh. It brings individuals into uh, a point of knowledge so that they are understanding their mental illness and what they can do about it. NAMI does not push any particular philosophy. We teach people, for example, about the medications that are in use, but we don't push medications. We believe that people need to, to be as informed in po- as possible about their illness and then make the decisions about what is best for them. It's interesting. I'm thinking back. I, I once, many years ago, had a patient in a, uh, a psychology ward in a hospital, and she was about to receive ECT, so electroconvulsive therapy, which is a whole other issue and stuff like that, and her psychiatrist came by, and I introduced myself to him, and I said, what can I do to offer support to the patient and her family? And he puts his hand on my shoulder, looks at me with a soft look, and says, just pray. Oh. It is so sad. Yeah. I was so sad. I would say, be there. Yeah, well, of course. <laughs> I was trying to be there, but also to find out from the professional you know, did he have any insights since he was working with his family that I might need to know as another professional from a different direction to help? So, uh, I, I recently a long way. was in touch with somebody from what, uh, one of our community mental health centers, and uh, I was asking her about uh, how she viewed NAMI's participation in uh, some meetings that are talking about the challenges for the community mental health center is trying to refer people to the county behavioral health division for services. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's not working as well as it could, and they're trying to figure that process out. And I, I didn't know how NAMI could contribute. And what she said to me is that um, we see NAMI as a neutral source of information and in constant contact with family members supporting people with mental illness. Um, so we our warm line hears from people in the community every day, people who are struggling caring for somebody with bipolar disorder, for example. And, and it's clear that it's not enough just to be in touch with a mental health professional. Um, the, the families need support, and they need uh, to know that the challenges that they're facing, they need not handle alone. Yes, yeah, so that warm line phone number, by the way, is 866-960-6264. And I'll repeat it again later. So could you take us through a uh, what happens on the warm line call? What 
if somebody called in and said, I'm having trouble with my well, First family. of all, it's not a crisis line. So we are open during our office hours, which are basically okay. 9 to 5. Um, we are there to listen, to help people identify what resources are available to them. Could be NAMI programs, but it might also be what do I do? I have a family member who has just been arrested. What are the first steps that I need to take? What happens inside the jail if somebody has a mental illness? What kind of programming is there for them? How do I uh, get information to the jail about my loved one? What medications they're on? We can help people understand the processes uh, within, the, within our county to support somebody that they loved who has run into a difficult situation. We listen. We try to be supportive. Uh, we're not a chat line necessarily, but we do our best to link people with resources that we think can help. So it's, in some ways it's information and referral. It's Absolutely. Uh, hearing what their needs are and trying to connect Absolutely. them with some of the, the available um available resources uh, in the county. Right. Um, most of the people coming in contact with NAMI dealing with uh, bipolar disease, depression, are those the two main And schizophrenia, I would say people uh, who are supporting someone with a serious mental health condition, okay. which would include bipolar disorder, it would include PTSD, uh -huh. it, would, it would include schizophrenia and major depressive disorder. But we also are a resource for people who have been affected in any way by the wildfires, for example. We have uh, our own support groups for wildfire survivors, helping them to build tools they need to build a better sense of resilience as they face the logistical challenges, perhaps, of rebuilding their homes or making a decision about what they're going to do next. And we have lists of mental health providers in Sonoma County who are interested in working with the wildfire survivors. And uh, we can help people access free resources, free yoga and meditation classes um, to help them. And how are those survivors doing? It's been uh, a year and a half. Uh, since the fires, are you still getting calls? We still, most of our calls do not come from wildfire survivors, to be honest, but we still hear from them. And uh -huh. uh, I recently had a phone conversation with someone who's writing a book about the shootings in Newtown, Connecticut. Um, and she was saying that in their community, they're finding that people 10 years later are still experiencing the effects of the trauma. And I think that with respect to the wildfires in Sonoma County, um, that people have been so busy making the decisions about the logistics, as I said, of rebuilding, not rebuilding, of moving or not moving, they haven't had time to address the emotional impact of being through this, these losses. And sometimes it hits home later on. Um, and we're also seeing some, we, we are getting contacted by people from Butte County have, who have moved to Sonoma County because they have family members here that they've been able to move in with. And um, they're having a tough time. Yeah, it's interesting. It's not the first time I've heard the issue of the long-term effects of the traumas, of the fires particularly, that from a housing point of view, from a, an emotional point of view, 
people. There will be flashbacks. There will be all kinds of things affecting people's lives. And it's nice to know that there are still uh, support facilities in our community to help those going through that because most people's lives just go on and we forget that uh, this trauma happened because it didn't happen directly uh, to most of us in right. the county. So it's The effects of trauma are long-lasting. They are long-lasting. So um, could you give a little example of what might happen in a uh, one of the education courses around uh, for the families? So uh, I think it's our flagship program. It's called NAMI Family to Family. It's a 12-session course, mm -hmm. and um, it, it takes people through... Uh, the major diagnostic categories. It talks about how the brain works. It talks about how medications that are used to treat mental illness work. It talks about understanding what happens to the person who lives with mental illness, the effect on their self-esteem, the effects of uh, their inability sometimes to make decisions. It talks about what family members can do to both take care of themselves so that they are better supports for the individual in their life who has mental illness. Mm. So I, I know you uh, these programs are available to be... Anyone housed. in Sonoma County, right. and they're available at no charge. We don't, we don't charge for our services. We are supported through grants uh -huh. and donations and to a small degree... NAMI memberships. It is, a, it is a membership organization, and that doesn't support our work, but membership is important because uh, our representing the needs of those affected by mental illness in our community, uh, it matters when I say we have X number of supporters who have chosen to be members of Sonoma County when I go before the Board of Supervisors, for example, um, and Sonoma County right now is facing serious cuts in our uh, budgets for mental health services in this county, and it's important that people be aware of the need for these services and how they impact our community. I know that from a budgetary point of view, from uh, through government agencies in particular, that mental health services are among the first things usually to be cut, and in many ways that's undermining a lot of what we do. Uh, in, in our society, and it's something that needs when to be... When we cut those budgets, we are shifting the cost simply to other areas. We're shifting the cost to our jails, which are now how the largest provider of mental health services in the county. We're shifting those costs to our hospitals, who are seeing more and more people in the emergency departments. And, yep, and that happens. That, that's how it has happened. Let me remind everyone that the warm line phone number is 866-960-6264. That's for NAMI. Uh, for a chat, a conversation about help with your families and recognizing mental illness issues and referrals to other resources that might be available in our community. So I want to thank you so much for being with us. Any final words that you would like to uh, share with the community. Thank you for having me. I just want to say that mental illness affects one in every five individuals in our community. It is not uncommon. Uh, there is hope for recovery, and the sooner the treatment takes place, the better. 
And I want to thank you for being here and thank you for taking upon yourself this personal mission to assume a position like this and to try to bring these resources uh, and the message of the resources to our community. So thank you very much. You are listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted at KPCALP, Petaluma, California. It's been wonderful to be here with you on uh, this Thursday morning. Our next uh, segment in two weeks, we'll have the opportunity among our two guests, or between our two guests, to meet Peggy Flynn, the new city manager of Petaluma. We'll see you in two weeks. Thank you.